Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Spartan Speak, a production of the Lansing State Journal and Detroit Free Press focused on Michigan State sports. I'm Phil Friend, your host and sports writer for LSJ, joined as always by two guys who almost saw Michigan State basketball end Mike Krzyzewski's career. It is Lansing State Journal sports columnist Graham Couch and Detroit Free Press, Michigan State beat writer Chris Sillery. Gentlemen, uh, welcome back to Lansing and... I think we have a lot of talk about when it comes to the Michigan State basketball, both how the season finished and in the future. Graham, how are you doing today? I'm great. It's good. I'm, you know, thought for a few minutes there that uh, Chris and I might be on flights to San Francisco today. Uh, and uh, but but alas, the off season hits abruptly as it always does, and uh, we, we we move on. Well, when it was. Uh... Yeah. When it was a five-point lead with five minutes to go, it definitely looked like you could almost get ready to start sc- scheduling those uh, plane tickets and hotels. But, uh, but alas, Chris, how are you? Well, 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 and that would be for the amateurs who hadn't already had those well, things yeah. ready yep. to go before that. But at the same point, um, if you thought that five points with five minutes to go was going to hold up, uh, you hadn't been watching the first weekend of the tournament <laughs> because. I can't recall as many good games, uh, particularly many, many more good games than blowouts, as as we've seen in this tournament. And and that 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 Michigan State Duke game, I think it came in with the highest rating TV wise of the weekend. It makes a lot of sense because the drama kept building throughout the game, and uh, you know those last ten minutes of that game were. Uh, Really, it reminded me so much of the 2019 game between those two teams that that it was it was astounding. And then obviously it just went the other direction, but it was a, a fun basketball game to watch. Yeah, I think I saw that it was what 11 million people watched the Duke Michigan State game. Is that what is that the number I saw? I think it was 11.2 million. Yeah, yes. that is a, that is a very high number for college basketball, especially in the year of our Lord. Uh, 2022 for a second round NCAA tournament game. Michigan State had, I think, the highest rated first round game too, if I recall. Um, it was up there. Um, that yeah, I mean, time well, lot helps. Yep, yep. And, and you know, the Sunday afternoon, you've got the you know the the late afternoon Sunday is the the back nine on the Masters time slot. It's a time that people are settled in for sports, and and uh, and those two teams delivered a, a compelling game, which which. Um, and, you know, and, and the, the brands of those two programs are strong. And I, you know, I think, you know, people get frustrated with Michigan state sometimes in the last couple of years, but it was very clear covering this, that Duke, the way people who cover Duke and the way people cover college basketball nationally perceive Michigan state as a program in terms of the strength and cachet is perhaps greater than Michigan state's own fan base realizes. And, Things take a while, you know, I mean, 
I, you know, I, I know that there's some frustration out there a little bit, but it's all, this is the first time in this decade that they've had two straight years where they haven't been a contender. And they've been this entire decade in the Champions Classic. And I think that stuff that stuff rubs off nationally and takes longer to, to fall by the wayside than it does locally. Well, and I think that there were, and there were probably a lot more people who had Michigan State from a national standpoint based on that. Uh, they, they felt going into that game that it would be a good game, that it would be a competitive game. Uh, I'm not necessarily sure if, if the people who watch Michigan State like we do or really like the fans do on a, on a game-in, game-out basis felt that way because I, I felt like there was an undercurrent of Michigan State people who thought this is just going to be a blowout um, in Duke's favor uh, because of the way the ups and downs of the season went. Uh, I, I do, though, think that you know whether some of that is all based on Tom Izzo or, you know, I think some of it was the way that Tom Izzo coaches in March changes the dynamic of some players. Um, but let's face it, I mean, guys like Marcus Bingham and Joey Hauser and Gabe Brown, uh, those three seniors had very, very good, if it is their final game, final games as Michigan State players, they had a, a heck of a, of a, a two games in that NCAA tournament between the three of them. Uh, Kind of a, in a lot of ways, the the what if factor had they have been playing like that uh, collectively uh, and and consistently throughout the year, you you ask yourself, and, and you and I think probably Tom Izzo as well says, geez, how much better could this season have been? Because the the clues were there that they could do this, but that they were able to put it together in that Duke game as well as they did. I, I don't know about you, Graham, but I thought that. You know, we talked up and down over and over about this was their the turning point performance all year, and it never never really coalesced into a, a big run. But I thought that was their best game. I thought they played their A game, and Duke needed their A game to beat them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I thought this was probably their uh, as close to their ceiling um, is is they were going to get. Um, you know, they were a team that at their best when things were, you know, and I, and I understand that, that, you know, if you get a great game also out of Malik Hall, maybe there's a little more, but, but the idea that they had, you know, you, there's much going for them with Gabe Brown and Marcus Bingham. And I thought Hauser played another good game, didn't score as much. I thought Max Christie, good second half, you know, Hogarth's foul trouble hurt. I mean, there, it's possible there's a slightly bit more, but to, to, they have not put anything together like this. And it's an example of just, um, you know, the, the the thing is they really didn't have a star this year, and Hogard might be becoming that. Uh, Matt Chris, Max Christie down the road may be that. Malik Hall had moments, but wasn't really. And they had a number of guys and and who on a given day were, um, and so you, that that you needed a day where most of them were going or, or, or several of them were really rolling and they got that against Duke and they got a level of grit that they needed to have. And, and they, they played with a swagger and a purpose and, and a sort of a resolve and a, and a counter everything Duke did. They countered, you know, when, when things were teetering a couple times in that game, they countered. And I thought that was impressive. And, you know, for a while, Chris, I thought, boy, if they had done, if they had not lost Northwestern or wanted Illinois, things like that, 
that they wouldn't have to face Duke so early. But let's be honest, this team was, if you put this as a potential Final Eight matchup, Michigan State's still probably not getting there. Like, for this Michigan State team, what they did better at their best was rise up to the other team's level. It didn't really, I mean, the next opponent could be whoever. There's a decent chance Michigan State was going to lose that game. So for them to have this sort of showcase, and I, I think it takes, I'm not saying it takes the sting out of it because they nearly had it. And this would have been a big deal to get to the Sweet 16 and Coach K's career for this team to have that. But I think that to see that group, those seniors, that team play that well, there's a sense of at least some satisfaction that they reached a, a, you know, a certain level where they haven't been. You know, when you talk about those guys, the the Max Christies, the the AJ Hogards and and Tyson Walker and Jaden Akins in particular, I think that nucleus next year. Uh, this is to me, you know, when you watch that game against Duke, the physical limitations of those players right now were on display. Um, I, I think this is. I, I don't know, and we've talked about it ad nauseum for four years about this with Marcus Bingham. Um, should he decide to come back, which, you know, I don't know if any of those three do end up coming back or how many if they do, but, like, it, let's say Bingham does. I mean, this has to be a full summer of weight room for those guys because um, you saw what the, the, uh, the veteran strength of Duke's guards did off the dribble and, and just powering down. Uh, on on Christie in particular, but Walker at times as well, and you know the between the conditioning and and, and that's it's funny to say because because Christie played 30 minutes a game, but you could tell that the conditioning wasn't there because this is a kid who who spent his entire upbringing and and you know high school career and and prospect career uh, before he got to college as a shooter, and the legs weren't there in the shot, so. The conditioning piece, I think, also comes with the strength piece in that. And same with Walker. I do think that Walker got a lot more confident as the season went along um, and being able to use his quickness. And I think that, you know, those two years that he spent at Northeastern, if he can get – he's got to condense it a little bit to get into the weight room and kind of do that and build up that little more of that, that trunk and upper body strength. But I think that they've got – with with Trey Holloman coming, I got got a chance to be a really really good backcourt next year. The, the thing is, and I, and I don't expect any of the guys to come back. I would be very surprised at this point if 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 any of the players came back. Graham, can I ask you a quick question before you continue? Yeah. Do we think all three of those guys are going to play in the NBA? Do they think they're going to the NBA, or are they just ending their college careers with the year of eligibility left? Uh, my guess is that two of them think they're playing in the NBA, hmm. um, or playing professionally. And it's time. And Gabe, and let's keep in mind, Gabe Brown is a better pro prospect on draft boards than Kofi Coburn. So, there, you know, you have to remember, yeah. I mean, do I think Gabe Brown is going to make the NBA? I have no idea. I mean, he's not, he's not been a consistent enough shooter to me to, to be a likely guy to stick um, for what he is as a player. He'll get a shot. He'll get a look. If not, he'll make a lot of money overseas. Same, same for Marcus Bingham, who I don't know how much. And I, I think there is probably more to give in college. And, and when we look at things from afar, like, why would you give up another year of college? Well, that's another year of class. It's another year of, you know, I mean, it's been a grind, the COVID year, everything. And from outside, it looks like, oh, let's play Michigan State basketball. That looks fun. But it's a lot of work. And and yeah. and, and you have your moment in college. I also think if Gabe Brown came back, that would hinder some development elsewhere on that roster. I think Bingham's the one guy they could use, especially. I mean, they're a little 
them at the four, but I think Malik Hall needs a year too. I think Malik Hall will be helped by being the guy, by playing a lot of minutes. By yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think that it really helps the program overall, the development of other guys to have Joey Hauser and and Gabe Brown back. Malik Hall's or sorry, uh, Mark Spingham's the one argument, but from what I understand, he's 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 gone too, and so that leaves him probably needing yeah, and needing a big. And with Bingham, I think you have to also keep in mind that he already gave up an extra year of eligibility by not taking a red shirt, which was so painfully obvious that he needed it in 2019 um, to physically try and develop a little bit more. And he didn't want it then. He, you know, so I don't, I don't see what, how he does in the back end, regardless of whether it would help him or not get to his ultimate goal. I, I think that some guys just are ready to be done with college sometimes. Yeah, and the the other thing is. You know, we talk about the. I mean, I, I think as a backcourt, they could be tremendous next year. I, I think what'll be fascinating, and, and and they just need to make sure they have the front court to the level that that doesn't screw that up. That opportunity. That's, that's yeah. That to me is going to be a really interesting situation because now you're talking about a, a guy in Brown who can play the three or the four. Um, you're talking about the four and five and Hauser and a five and Bingham. Um, with only one, with only one big man coming in, and Jackson Kohler, um, this is this is going to be a test of of Izzo's uh, flexibility, adaptability, and growth. He's talked a lot about you know learning, and and you know even as a coach, he needing him needing to learn certain things. I, I think that it, it's kind of in some ways veiled code that he realizes that he needs to go into the portal and get more bigs. And I'm 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 going to be interested to see what his philosophy and thought is on bankrolling scholarships now that he had a year of bankrolling those two because I think that may have changed as well. Um, you know, I think you you almost not just him, but I think that that coaches around the country were fearing. You know, you're going to have guys going in the portal all the time now, and I don't think it's going to matter what they did. You know, it's it's just going to be the nature of the beast now that the coaches are going to have to adapt and deal with. Um, and if you aren't, if you're losing guys to the portal, you better be doing your due diligence and, and getting guys in the, in the portal yourself. And big guys aren't easy to get, you know, there's certain, I think the Riley kid a couple years ago, um, you know, I think of, of John Harar is the guy that I've brought up quite a bit, but I think that that was kind of the one missing piece that they needed just a sturdy big man in that mold that old school Tom is a mold of, of power forward centers. Um, you know, those guys aren't, aren't uh, a dime a dozen, particularly at a high level that you would, if you're bringing in a transfer, you're going to want and need. So I, I would, I would not be shocked to hear Michigan state kicking the tires on every single big man in the portal. But at the same time, I think they're also going to have to do their due diligence to make sure that those are the kind of guys, the, the OKGs, you know, if these guys can't take hard coaching, if they can't um, be prepared physically and mentally to to do the things that are needed within that system, I don't know if, if they'll go after them. Uh, I think it's got to be a match. I think that's particularly to play for Tom Izzo. You, have, you can't have malcontents who are upset with one thing or another. You have to have a guy who absolutely embraces what that program is and stands for. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the good news for them in that front is that the guys who generally are interested in Michigan State are going to be guys who, I mean, it's not like Tom Izzo hasn't been front and center the last few years in the last, you know, like they're going to sort of have a sense of what that 
could be like, and there are also probably be, be people who are seeking a winning situation. And that's why they want to move or something on a, on a, on a, on a bigger stage, something like what you saw against, against Duke. And, um, and so, yeah, but there's, there's no doubt they've got to add, they've got to bolster their front court. They've got to get some rim protection. You can't, because what you have inside right now is, you know, Julius Marble might take some steps. There might be more left for him to develop. He, he needs to become, he should be a better rebounder than he is. He, he needs to become sort of a relentless technician and defender that somebody who, um, you know, doesn't get, doesn't have so many unfavorable matchups because he's really good against certain guys and then just sort of not fit to battle with others in terms of, you know, I mean, we saw it against Duke, right? And so he needs, he's got enough strength and enough quickness that he should be, he could be, I think, better against uh, perceived mismatches, even if he's not a great vertical athlete or, or whatnot. The, uh, and, and Sissoko, I think, you know, is a guy who they still, you know, is still a project they're working on who had some moments where he was gave them more than just being worth five fouls. But I, I don't think you can trust either one of those things happening. And the other guy, Jackson Kohler, is a, a really, really intriguing offensive basketball prospect. Who I think it could be a lot of fun to watch uh, in, his, in his time at MSU. But defensively, I don't know what he'll be as a freshman. And so you, you're relying on a lot of lot of unknowns when – you know, this is a two-year group. The reason, you know, I, I, I've been sort of, uh, I don't want to say, I mean, I've been hard on them occasionally, but also sort of from the beginning thinking this was a two-year group. Well, next year you go with a different caliber of expectation, I think, from the jump. And you next year should be a year where you're in contention again. And next year you should have the backcourt with Hogard and, and Walker and, and Akins and Christie. And I'm talking about three spots there, too to really make a move and, 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 you know, you're hoping Pierre Brooks gets into that. And if Trey Holloman carves out a role, that's great too. I don't think there's going to be a ton of point guard minutes to be had, but there's, there's a lot of, that, that could be a, a dynamic, versatile, extremely good backcourt. And you've got to I'm make curious. sure you have a front court that doesn't hold that back. Yeah. And I'm curious to see how Brooks translate and where do you play him? Do you play him? predominantly at the three uh you know is he is he he's physically sturdy enough but does he have the physical abilities to to play an undersized four right um you know and you obviously got malik hall uh, who i think also needs another year in the weight room to to kind of i thought gabe brown did a good job remaking his body in the off season i think malik hall needs to do that as well get more upper body strength and not get knocked off the block so easily if he's going to be playing the four like that. Um, I, I think that, you know, it, and anybody you bring in, uh, I think needs to, to do the same thing. I mean, Sissoko has got all the physical tools, but he is very green basketball wise. And you've seen it every time he plays, you know, he had points where at the end of the year where his minutes were starting to increase a little bit, but I thought it was also telling that they didn't go to him uh, against Bonchero and Williams in that game at all. You know, there's a trust factor on the defensive side that needs to be there. And, you know, that comes from reps. That comes from understanding and learning that, that gap defense. And, you know, he it's a, it's a critical, critical offseason for him in particular. Yeah, I mean, if I could pick one play that really encapsulates the Michigan State big man issue, it's that play with under two minutes to go when, you know, Duke takes the 75-74 lead in the call 
I don't know if this is the play call, but it ended up being Hauser underneath going through the lane trying to get a layup on Banchero, and Banchero just blocks it with incredible ease, and that leads to the Roach three-pointer next possession. It's a four-point game. All of a sudden, the tightest turn. So that's the play that really stood out to me that really is like, yeah, this this big man thing is, is I mean, it's been a show all year, but really signified that. Well, even even the play before that with Hogard driving in, I mean, you know, there was – you know, you you go straight up into a seven foot one guy as a six four guard. Um, there was no attempt to to move or make a move around him, and all he did was all Williams did was just go straight up and down on him and anchor himself on the block. Um, you know that comes from another year of of learning, I think, as well and strength uh, because he wasn't getting any calls as it was Hogard uh, when he was making a lot of drives, even though it was quite a bit of contact at times. Uh, so, but particularly, you're right from the big standpoint. Um, that was that was a, a, a good example, and I don't think Hauser, you know, in in many situations is going to be taking anybody off the bounce. I'm not not sure what happened on that play. Yeah, I mean, not to criticize Hauser, he was great for a lot, a lot of stretches on the game offensively. And uh, you know, you I want just a quick point about Gabe Brown. You talked about him being NBA ready. I mean, he hit those first four. He hit his first four three point attempts, and you know he was getting out. He was leaking out on the break as well. And those are the type of things that NBA teams are going to want to see. And I guess that what makes him an intriguing prospect as well. Well, yeah, and, and if he's he's wiry, he's long. I always thought he, you know, he's, he, the real question for for Gabe Brown is is, you know, there are lots of guys built like him who sort of have his skill set who stick in the league. What the guys who actually make it do is is make 40 plus percent of their three pointers and so that that's really what it comes down to is will he be that can he be that consistent at the next level when that's your role and i don't know that he can he hasn't shown that in college to this point so that would be the but it doesn't mean he won't be an end of second round pick um and uh you know somebody that the mb or, or a guy who gets a, certainly a spot on a summer league and and um gets a look and and uh so yeah, that'll be. That's all stuff that you know. And I, you know, I'm I'm happy for those guys because they, you know, they they did finish with their best. They absolutely did. I mean, what what Hauser did in that that Davidson game, and then I thought he played well. And then those two guys, Bingham and Brown, in the, in the Duke game. Yeah, Bingham hit two threes against Duke. I don't think anybody had that uh, on their bingo card at at all. <laughs> well, and he was funny. Yeah, is he was joking about all these big guys like who were supposed to be great, and he's like, "Well, I'm that too." And he, then he was, and, and credit to him. I mean. He wasn't that all year all the time, and that's part of the reason they were in the spot they were in, but uh, but he was at the end. Yeah, he really – I thought he was – the, the most impressive parts of, of Marcus Bingham's game, the last two games in particular, and really the last six games, was the different level of intensity that he brought because he was clogging passing lanes, he was moving defensively, he was not just blocking shots, but – but using his wingspan uh, to to get deflections, to to do all you know all the little things, attacking the loose ball rebounds, things that we that he had been hearing for three and a half four years, that were finally you know it, maybe it took that that light switch coming on that this this is probably going to be my end at Michigan State, so I want to go out with a flourish. And I think he had three three double doubles in his last six games, which yeah. you know. Had he been able to do that consistently, you know, who knows what? I mean, because a seven footer with showing that kind of range, um, you know, teams would teams look for those kind of things. So, I don't know where his future lies, um, which I think is going to be 
you know, I think this next month uh, for those guys is going to be particularly interesting. Do they, do they, does, does something change where they, they have conversations and one or two of them stay? Do, do they see that they need more refinement and try and go somewhere else? I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of things that could happen within between now and, and I, I feel like, you know, the end of April where these guys will, will announce their determinations and, and maybe they, maybe it is, maybe it's just that they're, they're ready to go pro and make some money on it. I mean, you're right. I mean, the, the, the timetable in college has changed so much that you never know what conversation could be had. Um, but I would bet my mother's house today that all three are gone. Well, and the other, the other thing to keep in mind too, is that Hauser does have the potential for another year beyond this because of enrolling early and, and taking that half year red shirt at Marquette. Um, so if he wanted to, he could petition for an injury eligibility. Um, I don't know if he does, um, but you could see, I saw many differences in him, uh, you know, in that final game against Duke, and there was a point where, where he was getting subbed out and, and he is frantically screaming and yelling at the bench that he doesn't want to come out, that he wants to stay in the game. And I don't know if we would have seen that from Joey Hauser two months ago or maybe even two and a half weeks ago. But he was he he found something, so you know it, it has to be so with these guys. They have to want to be able to to stay in college, which I don't know if any of them do. I mean, that's you know four years in college is a long time for guys. Five years is longer, and you know not everybody's Jordan Bohannon who can stay there for seven, eight, nine years like him and Brad Davidson. I was just going to mention Brad Davidson as well, definitely in that category. <laughs> well, I, I do want to bring up one guy who we really haven't talked about. Is I mean, he's been mentioned, and we talked about the guards a little bit, is A.J. Hogard. Uh, I just thought these last two games he, the, against Davidson and Duke, like he, he looked like a star point guard that he was recruited to be. and But that blocking, that blocked layup against Duke notwithstanding, uh, he was driving to the lane confidently, and most importantly, two things, finishing said drives and not turning the ball over, which – uh, two things we weren't seeing on a consistent basis during the regular season. And I was just really impressed with Hogard, and I think he's just ready to take the next step and be kind of a leader next season for, for the Spartans. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree with that. I agree. I mean, I, he, look, he's been – it's not it, – he gets in the lane and he's trouble for people. What's amazing about him is that you know he's not a, a threat yet to shoot the three, really, and yet he can still – He's a, you can't keep him out of the lane, and he's a menace now when he gets in there, and some of the passes he's firing away in there, and – the shot. I mean, he, he's he's. I mean, I, I didn't. I thought the the real mistake they made, if if any, against Duke was that they did not play him enough early. They needed to settle him down for a minute, but then his the the minute allocation in the first half, where they were only down four and they kind of got away with it. But I I didn't. I didn't, I thought he he needed to be in there more. And it's not that Walker didn't play well. He did. He played extremely well. And they played you know together obviously some. And I think that's an interesting option. But Hogard is a guy who, because of his personality and sort of his unwavering, never-ending confidence. Um, that now that he's sort of reined that in, it's no longer just, I used to think it was sort of delusion as much as confidence. And now it's, um, yeah, he, he, he looks like he is uh, on the precipice of being a really, a really, really special player. I thought the one play that, that really kind of showed his growth was after, you know, after Duke tied it up. Uh, I mean, it very well easily could have been a turnover, where the ball got deflected into the backcourt and there, the shot clock was winding down and he not only chased down the loose ball and beat the Duke player to it, but then 
quickly came back up court and and scored in traffic, which was a heck of a play. And there was another play early in the game. <clears throat> it wasn't it, it, the block shot that he had on Mark Williams that, you know, he probably got arm on it, whatever, but that wasn't the impressive play to me. The impressive play to me was he gets the block, falls to the ground, and is back up and going in transition. That's a Tom Izzo point guard right there. That was the that was the one the moment where I thought AJ Hogard showed that he is capable of doing the things that Izzo wants from a toughness and quickness standpoint. Um, it's a play that kind of gets forgotten because of the block, because of how the game went. But his ability to get back up and go is you know that's what what this team needs from a, a leadership standpoint. That's uh, you know that I think he's going to be good. I do think that. The one thing in this, that game, I think they, they waited maybe a little too long to go with the Hogard-Walker combination. Um, you know, they probably could have could have and should have interspersed it a little bit more uh, maybe in the sec- earlier in the second half or even at times in the, the first half. But um, I thought that Michigan State's offense was its most dynamic with those two in there. And, I'm, I mean, when they got their, their run to start taking the lead, those two were the guys that were in there together. And Hogarth picking up his fourth foul kind of changed their ability to do that and forced them to kind of do some things substitution-wise that, that they had to go away from from it. And, and, you know, you wonder if that didn't cost some, some momentum uh, at that point. There wasn't a uh, momentum changer like that Illinois game where the guy got called for uh, the technical foul on, on the slam dunk or, or something. But, uh, yeah, or, or something. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, they officiate. I mean, the officiating feels like it's always a big uh, talking point. Did you guys feel like that was a factor in this game? Because it feels like it was a factor in many, many other NCAA tournament games uh, this past weekend. There was a few fouls late in Rapids. I mean, you know, and Krzyzewski's obviously won his 1,200th game. Probably a 200 of them were very well helped by the officials, you know, I'd say. But that's sort of the, the – but, you know, I mean, I didn't think there was anything egregious in this particular game. I I mean, the, the the Illinois technical foul is one where that official shouldn't work again because you can't like that's an instinct that if you have you shouldn't be officiating. Like why why would you have that instinct? Like it's not it's not really a judgment call. It's you choosing to look at a situation and almost wanting to call a technical and interject yourself in the game. And if that's where your instinct is, then you cannot be you cannot be officiating games like ever again. If you make if you do something really bad in life, you can't just brush it off and say, well, I shouldn't have done that. Well, no doubt, but there's a, you know, there are consequences for it. For that official, that, that, that was an egregious, egregious decision. I, I, I know we're just getting a little off topic, but that, that has bothered me more and more since, since I've seen the replay uh, and, and how that person could, could, could remain as an official. Yeah. The only reason I wanted to mention it was because uh, everyone's big favorite big 10 official Bo Borowski was the, the, the lead official for the game and everyone on social media was Graham's like, favorite official. <laughs> Graham's favorite. Yeah. Official too. Everyone was freaking out about it. And it didn't really seem like to be much of a factor in the game. So I, I, at least from my perspective, I was, I'm with you on that Graham. I mean, I mean, there was the one point where there were three fouls in 13 seconds, including oh, yeah. uh, two with the clock stop, but that's a whole other thing. I mean, that can happen in any game. I thought those were ticky-tack calls, but ticky-tack calls happen both ways. I thought, let me put it this way, it was poorly officiated at times in both directions. Uh, that said, I think the foul count was, to me, it, it, it went a little bit more with Michigan State's style of play. Um, 
you know, Duke was playing physical too, though, and they weren't getting some of the whistles. But, you know, was it the difference in the game? No, I think Duke's NBA talent was the difference in that game. Yeah, and when you transpose uh, the Davidson and Michigan State games, it was at the same points, you know, going different ways where the game got took over. Like, Michigan State really took over uh, the Davidson game in that stretch right before the four-minute timeout and then, like, the 90 seconds after the coming back from the timeout where they were able to stretch that lead up to, I think, six or seven. Remember correctly? And that was at the same spot where Duke made their comeback and, and you know, really kind of put Michigan State back on its heels. So uh, I just thought it was interesting, interesting uh, transposition there. I don't even think that's a word, but you you guys get what I'm saying. Maybe not. Maybe you, do, maybe you don't get what I'm saying. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, do you guys want to talk? Do you guys want to talk about Fletcher Lawyer Davidson for a few minutes here? Or? We haven't talked since the Davidson game. I, you know, yeah. I think that was yeah. That's a part of this season. That's a part of this journey that was. Um, uh, you know, I look. Davidson's a really good team. They were better than I thought. They were. I mean, I watched them play a fair number of times this year. I watched them play in person once against a bad team, albeit. I, I thought it was a good matchup for Michigan State and Davidson. There was a there was a toughness to them, um, that was that Michigan State, you know, had to really counter to win that game. And I was impressed. Yeah, and I thought Michigan State did a good job. I mean, they took uh, Brockovich out of that game early, uh, got him into foul trouble, uh, but then in the second half, you saw what kind of player he was. I mean, he was scoring at times at will, which. Again, I think shows the need for strength, the need for depth and talent in the post uh, from Michigan State standpoint on both ends, not just offensively. Uh, I thought they did a pretty good job on shutting down Lee um, and forcing him into some tough, bad shots at times. And then I think what we saw with the Foster Lawyer, uh, I guess, situation, you want to call it, he's, you, you saw there that he's at the right spot. Because there were moments, particularly late in that game, where Michigan State's guards were just physical with him and pestered and bothered him, and he made some of the same foster lawyer mistakes that he made for the previous two years when he was playing at Michigan State, where were falling on the ground and you know that one play under the basket that should have been travel uh, that wasn't called, um, the shot that went over the backboard, so. I think there was some some moments in that game where he, where it, and granted he hit he hit a couple big shots late. There's no question about that. I mean, I thought he showed tremendous resolve with those those issues that he was having, and they were they were all over him from start to finish in that game defensively. Um, but I I I thought that he showed some some mental toughness and resolve. Uh, you know, it, it, it's funny how. You know, you could see the trans, your transition, as you will, or translation, um, or transposition, yes. whatever you want to call it. The difference between the Foster lawyer and the bigger guards that Michigan State had versus Michigan State's guard versus the NBA type guards that Duke has. I mean, I thought there was a linear thing where you look at that and you see who should be at who's at what level, right? Um, you know, I I think when when Izzo says they need to get to that next level, um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, getting stronger as, as a group, uh, not not just uh, not just uh, physically either. Sometimes mentally, and you know, there's. I thought there was a, a a good line in terms of those two teams that they played 
of where they're at right now and where they need to get to, what they need to do to get there, too. Yeah, I thought, you know, that Michigan State really did a good job of shutting down the guards, Lee and Lawyer, but, uh, I mean, they've had that, they have, excuse me, they've had problems with big men all season, and even though he was the conference player of the year, Davidson's big man just when he wasn't in foul trouble, just could do what he wanted. And then the the dude with the broad shoulders, number three, whose name I don't remember, was Sam Manningham. Yes, canning corner threes out of nowhere. And I know there was some talk on MSU. Yeah, well, that wasn't out of nowhere. That wasn't out of nowhere, though. His, his, you might have looked at his season stats and right. thought that. But he had, in that, that game against Richmond, it hit four of four. Yeah. He so was, you knew he was coming in with a hot hand. And he was also taking him off the bounce. I thought he, he attacked Joey Hauser quite a bit. Uh, off the dribble, particularly in the first half. Yeah, he was like a 45% three-point shooter, but he had not attempted that many three-pointers. So I think that's where maybe that maybe that's where I was thinking in terms of maybe a little surprising. And I know that, uh, going back to Laurie here, uh, MSU Twitter was like, they basically just wanted Hogard and Walker to take him to the lane every time, <laughs> and they were mad that Michigan State wasn't doing that. Do you think Michigan State was just taking it easy on him in that regard, or do you think they really should have tried to exploit his defensive liabilities more than they did because it really didn't seem like they tried to drive on him too much i mean i thought they did a fair bit uh, here and there with with uh especially with with hogard um but it also speaks to who michigan state is not this year i mean they are not a team and they're a jump shooting team that doesn't do that well you know and it, it you don't change your stripes all of a sudden um but uh you know i don't think they took it easy on him i you know i, I mean i felt bad i felt bad for him i felt bad for his experience and you know, th- this is going to happen more and more. It, you know, I don't think it's anything that the committee necessarily paired together. I just think this is going to happen more and more. More guys transfer, and you're going to wind up with interesting pairings like this. But uh, it, I- I'm glad he has another year if he wants it because, um, you know, I don't know if they'll get back to the tournament. They lose a few key guys, but uh, I, you know, I don't think that that was an entirely enjoyable experience all the way around for him. Oh, totally. I could see it when I was asking him about certain things before the game. And, you know, he kind of, he's like, I don't, I, I disagree with that. I don't think that it's a, a foster lawyer against Michigan, uh, against Michigan State or his former teammates or Tom, Tom Izzo. It's, it's foster, it's Davidson against Michigan State. You could tell it was, it was weighing on him. And that's, that's not fair for a kid, um, particularly a kid who gave, I, you know, you could say whatever you want about his his physical limitations, but that kid gave his heart to that Michigan State program, and you know, wanted to be there, and and you know, for three years, did everything he needed to, and really helped, you know, Cassius Winston during the hardest time of his life. Um, you know that that people sometimes don't think about those components of it, and Izzo had said, you know, he really hopes that Foster Lawyer someday comes back as a graduate assistant. I don't think that's I don't think that's just lip service either. I think he no. really likes the kid, and, and I don't think that you shouldn't like the kid. You know, just because he's 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 not what anybody else thought he would be, or you know, maybe uh, the expectations others had weren't the same for him, um, or maybe there was a misreading of his talent for, from the coaching standpoint. That doesn't, that doesn't that's not anything about who Foster Lawyer is. And I thought it, you know, it was great to see him hit those shots late to keep them in it and keep their hope alive, because it would have been a terrible experience if he had gone out with just that that trip and fall under the basket. I think he was able to at least get a little bit of positive thing. And you could tell after the game with the hugs and the handshakes and 
everything, just how much Foster Lawyer meant to those guys and, and to those coaches. Yeah. He, he only had six points late until those two late baskets that kind of upped his uh, point total a little bit. So um, let me ask you guys this. I know well, there's still going to be a lot of shaking out uh, between other teams and who transfers, who departs for the league or whatever, but where do you kind of see Michigan State being ranked in the preseason poll next season? Is this a top 25 team? Is this a top 15 team? Sure. Oh, it, it will be based on brand, certainly, and I think the way they finish against Duke, and they'll have enough key recognizable names um, that, you know, I mean, what you're doing, the preseason rankings are are basically based on momentum at the end of the year and recognizable names coming back. And um, and Michigan State will have all of that. They'll have Max Christie, they'll have Hogard, they'll have Malik Hall, they'll have uh, and they'll have the the game against Duke that people remember with all those guys coming back. And so, I, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, it, they'll have things to prove, and I, it, it won't be a top-10 team, but I can see it being somewhere in the, you know, 14 to 20 range in the, in the preseason pool. I can't see anything. I can't see anything at all because, what was it, Texas that went out and loaded up when, when they hired Chris Beer on transfers and all of a sudden found themselves – you know, bumped up into the top 15 or whatever out of nowhere. Uh, that the transfer portal changes these these and and I've never liked the too early rankings as it is because there's so much that happens now um, in the off season and that I think that you know between guys going to the NBA and turning pro and guys transferring schools and you know, guys reclassifying, going from junior classes to, to right to college. I, I think you just cannot peg it. I, I think, you know, right now, it, like just based on what's there right now and everything, I'd say they'd be a top 20, top 15 type team. Um, but that's going to change. I mean, it's, you know, if it would go out and get two dynamite transfers and all of a sudden maybe you're talking top 10. I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, and let's let's face it. I know a lot of people have said, you know, Izzo's stubborn about things and whatever. Listen, Izzo's embraced transfers more than people realize. You know, all the way back to Brandon Wood and Joey Hauser and Bryn Forbes and Tyson Walker. Um, it's not that he's not embracing it. Believe me, it's it. it, it there's got to be that fit. Um, I, I think that's you know he's bemoaned the athletes a lot, not specifically, but generally, this generation of athletes, which is kind of, you know, older coaches do that no matter what. But I, I think he still has a, 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 a concept of what he wants and what type of player makes his program successful. Um, and he's going to find them, whether it's – I don't think it, – he's, he's, he he's not anti-transfer portal. Let's put it that way. Uh, let's branch away from Michigan State basketball here for a couple of minutes because I want to ask you about just the Big Ten and the NCAA tournament in general. Uh, Michigan and Purdue were the only two teams to make it to the second weekend, and there seemed to be a big dunk party after uh, after we saw four Big Ten teams lose on the same day. And Do you just kind of feel like this is about what it should be for the Big Ten in terms of this year anyway, in terms of just two in the Sweet 16, or did the Big Ten, like last year, lay a humongous egg in the postseason once again? The SEC was worse, you can argue. The Big Ten's got two, but no, this was bad. This was, you know, to me, I'm probably, uh, you know, and look, I don't think that 
the tournament in a snapshot is a fair representation of conference. It's about matchups individually. But two years in a row, your best teams have flamed out for the most part. Not Purdue, but a lot of them. Um, Illinois, particularly, and uh, Iowa yeah. this year, and and in, in Wisconsin to some degree, and match with this should have worked. And so what I and I and I don't think that says anything about the depth. I'm cool with the coach talking about the depth. I just don't want to hear that you're the best at the top. I, I just don't think you're high end. And I think the style of big man ball that they play in a lot of these teams isn't helping them when they get to the next round. That's not necessarily what happened to Iowa or Wisconsin, but but Illinois two years in a row, the the, the Kofi thing doesn't doesn't do you any good, and the, at the, at the it didn't do any good for Luca Garza. Um, and I'm not saying you don't recruit big men. I'm just saying that until the Big Ten has a little more, and I, I'm not somebody who believes you have to have national championships. I mean, if you look at the last, really, if you still look at the last two decades, the last seven years, last eight years, the Big Ten is um, as good as any league there is in terms of putting teams in the Final Four. But these last two years, it, until they have some second weekend success, uh, I just don't want to hear it. I just don't because they, 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 this is this is, um, and it, it, you can say, well, it's not the talents matchups. Then it's coaching. It's something they have not performed at, at this at this level, and it's two years of it. It'll be interesting to see how it changes in two weeks if you know Purdue makes the run and and wins it all. I mean, it's been since two thousand since sure. Michigan State won it that that a Big Ten team has done it, but. You know, if there's any team that's had the the depth and talent to do so, um, I, you know, I think that, that Purdue's got as good a case as anybody that the Big Ten's had recently, uh, particularly this year with everything being so all over the map. And, you know, there's, there's obviously a, a pretty decent path for them there. So, I mean, if, if Purdue gets there, I mean, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, yeah, sure, it's, you know, it looks a lot better for the Big Ten, but, but you know the first weekend exits. I mean that was that was uh, was a Sunday bloody Sunday. You may as well say for the Big Ten. You know, I mean it was it, it was you know no one. I don't think anyone should be surprised by Wisconsin, um, Iowa maybe a little bit. Um, but you know, I, I think there's always that that issue with Iowa in terms of when when is the fade going to come? When's the Fran fade going to come? And this year it just happened to come the first weekend of the tournament. Um, feel sorry for those people who were foolish enough to put Iowa in their final four. Um, no, no names mentioned, <laughs> but, uh, but, but listen, Kentucky lost to St. Peter's. So, yeah. you know, this, what we're, is it a big 10 problem or are we talking about, about a crazy year around the country where anything could happen because of parody, because of guys getting fifth years with COVID and everything else. I mean, there's a lot of things I think you could see, I I wouldn't you know I wouldn't write off the Big Ten as not being up there uh, because I do think the depth of the conference is still there. Um, but that said, you know the, the, this wasn't a good look by any stretch of the imagination this year. But you know, come fall, you'll probably see six or seven top twenty-five Big Ten teams. So that's just the nature of the beast. Par for the course. And uh, you mentioned Kentucky lost. Baylor also lost. Uh... Uh, Arizona almost lost its second round game to TCU, so it just uh, this is a it's a couple Gonzaga, Gonzaga, yeah, Gonzaga almost lost to Memphis. It's not a singular thing. There's quite a bit. It's a it's a single elimination tournament. These are this is how things go. It's chaos. And and, and my issue is not so much the Illinois lost; it's how they played. Oh, they played terrible. 
Yes, if Illinois lost a game like the Michigan State-Duke game to a, a really good Houston team in a 4-5 matchup, and we left and said, wow, that was a great game, too bad for Illinois, that that wouldn't be a referendum. But Illinois is too, you know, and, and there's some questions, and I know if you look at the data on the Big Ten tournament champions in recent years, they've actually done fairly well. But these are two years now where the team that was most invested, I think, in getting it done the weekend before with four straight wins or three straight wins, Illinois and then Iowa, didn't bring it, you know, early in the Big Ten tournament, didn't have or in the NCAA tournament. And again, of the many reasons the Big Ten tournament, if you've if you've already done it, if you, you're solidified, is, is worth checking out of and is not a true conference championship, it's right there. Because if, if I I don't see how Iowa I mean, Iowa was so motivated, so driven, so efficient for several weeks going into that tournament and then that tournament and then to have, you know, that showing. I, I don't know. It, it, that was that was really disappointing for the league. I think. And yet, Michigan is there. I mean, that's right. You know, that it's all about coming together at the right time of the year and and having the talent to do so. And you know, some teams peak early, some teams peak late. But um, you know, w- what happens with Michigan will be interesting. I mean, I, I'm really curious to see can they sustain it? Can they make a an 89 type run? I don't know. I mean, it's. You know, they, there's talent there, um, but you know that that doesn't get any easier. Texas Tech's a hell of a team. Yeah. You know that's uh, that's that's not an easy challenge uh, for them. Or excuse me, Villanova. I'm sorry, I was <laughs> thinking of the wrong bracket. I was thinking about the Michigan State bracket. Um, no, the Villanova team. I mean, I had Villanova in my Final Four. Um, they're still alive. My, all of my Final Four are still alive. How are your How's your brackets doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm horrible. Safe. I, I'm, near, I'm near the bottom of everything I'm in. I'm near the bottom of everything I'm in too, but I still have three of my final four teams. I've got all four. I've got. I had Gonzaga. I had Arizona. I had Villanova and uh, Kansas. I believe was the other one. And Kansas obviously has. I mean, they can get past Providence. It's you know, and a ten or eleven. Even if Iowa State and Miami are playing well, and you know. Uh, well, Nova and Arizona will be an interesting game. I guess Purdue – I'm sorry, Purdue was my other one, not Arizona. I have Villanova knocking off Arizona to get there, but Purdue is my other one in that bracket. And, you know, they they got to beat that that vaunted St. Peter's team that is America's Cinderella right now. Um, and then UNC and UCLA on the other side of it. So, yeah. If I know my Purdue basketball history like I think I do, St. Peter's is going to win that game. Purdue ten, tends to lose weird, weird, A-word college basketball games in the postseason in the NCAA tournament. Absolutely true. Well, it, it'll be interesting to see because I think this is, you know, that Carson Edwards team uh, a couple years ago, I think they got to the Elite Eight and they were close, but I think this is their best chance. They had that game won yeah. and they blew it. This is their best chance, and this is this is a chance – if they, if you want a, a year where history sometimes doesn't matter, this could be it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure Shashevsky's team gets past Texas Tech. To be honest, I mean, that could be the end of his career uh, on Thursday. By the way, I, I had Iowa, um, Baylor, I mm. and um, somebody <laughs> yeah. else's loss too. Oh boy, Kentucky. <laughs> no, I had Gonzaga and Arizona. I don't know who the who the hell knows, but uh, but, but it, yeah, it was not it was not it was not pretty and. and 
it's, these are the hardest things to predict this tournament. And, um, every year, I mean, that's what makes it so great. And, and, and that's what makes it so dangerous to, uh, really, you know, judge programs and teams by a singular, uh, result, uh, you know, and, uh, over time though, I think it's, it's fair. It's sort of like a plus minus number in a college basketball game, you know, and in a snapshot, you can justify just about anything. You can understand why things happen. It's a single game. And, um, but you know, it's also from to bring it back to Michigan state is why Izzo was so revered in the month for a while is, is there is something to being able to win a lot of these matchups that are such a crapshoot and, and so difficult to, against so many different kind of matchups and, 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 you know, they had runs, I think what built Izzo's legacy beyond the three first final fours in a row was also the runs they had sort of unexpectedly, um, you know, the Oh three run and, uh, you know, the 15 run. Oh, five. Oh, three, oh, five. Yeah, it was oh, three, oh, five, 15. Is, am I right? Yeah. Oh, three, oh, five, 15 are the three that were sort of out of nowhere. And, um, those, those runs really bolster because not a lot of coaches have three runs of, of, you know, elite eight or final four in them off teams that at one point in the year were, um, those weren't bad teams, but weren't considered that, you know? So, I thought the, the the one thing of the weekend that I thought was fascinating in hindsight was uh, going into to the Greenville bracket and, and listening to Bob McKillop, Davidson's coach, talking about it, he'd known Jim Laranega for years, and Laranega told him, said, oh, maybe it's a good omen. The last time they had been in the same uh, first two rounds was back in 2005. Uh, I believe it was um, – Oh, oh, maybe it was, I'm saying, I think it was 06, uh, the year that, that Laranega's George Mason team knocked off Michigan State and made that surprise run to the Final Four. And lo and behold, Laranega's Miami team knocks off Auburn to go to the Sweet 16 uh, as a 10 seed. So it was pretty prescient that, that he kind of saw that. And, you know, you, who knows? Hot teams right now, I don't know how much, you know, I don't know how much double-digit seeding means sometimes at this point anymore. Um, just because of the parity that, that's evolved and the way the transfer portal has changed some things. But would it surprise me if I saw at least one double-digit seed reach New Orleans? Do you guys want to change your national title picks based on the first two weeks, first two games, or are you guys confident? I think you guys both picked Gonzaga. Is that right? Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't have any idea, nor do I, you know. There you go. Yeah. All right, fair enough. I'm stuck with Villanova for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, got, I've got all four of my final four teams left, you know. And once again, that is Gonzaga, Villanova, <laughs> Purdue, and the other team that that I had. Perfect, perfect, <laughs> perfect way to end this podcast. <laughs> Do you guys uh, have any final thoughts before we sign off here? Not a one. I've seen you yawning about every two or three minutes here through the course of this recording. That's so, not uh, true. <laughs> I don't believe it. He's making stuff up. <laughs> it's been a long week. Yeah. Kansas was my other one, by the way. Um you know, I, I think it's important we just briefly touch on spring football because we'll be getting back into that uh, going into this week. I mean, we talked to uh, some coaches and players last week. Um, you know, Mel Tucker obviously last Monday and before practices started, and Peyton Thorne and Jaden Reed and a couple of the other guys. And you know, it's it, there's a lot of buzz with the team. 
probably the most buzz I've seen around the spring football since I've been around. But at the same time, it is still spring football. It is still practice. Um, it's a building block phase. Um, so make sure you keep that in mind, and we'll have a lot more coming at lsj.com and freep.com here in the next couple weeks leading into that April 16th spring game. We'll talk to some players on Thursday, and there'll be stuff coming over the weekend. There you go. What a preview from Chris. A lot of football content coming his way. Just what he's ready to do coming coming right off the NCAA or right coming off the NCAA tournament in Michigan State basketball season. Secretly, I'm. That's the one reason I wanted to go to San Francisco's one more week to wait on spring football. <laughs> but it's here, Graham. It's football season. I know you love it. It, it is not. It is not football March, season. I will, football in March and April, Graham. I, I will. I will respect the people are fired up about it. But I refuse to. Uh, I refuse to enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Spartan Speak, a production of the Lansing State Journal, Detroit Free Press, and the USA Today Network. If you enjoy this podcast and the work surrounding it, please consider subscribing. You can follow our coverage at lsj.com, freep.com, and on Twitter at Graham underscore Couch, at Chris Solari, at Phil underscore Friend, and to LSJ Green White. Thanks for listening. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.